alone. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we meditate upon these words that we have just read, the holy words of your scripture, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of each one of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, our rock and redeemer. So after the events of Pentecost, which I covered over the last three sermons, we know that the church, as we know it, was born. They did many things differently from the way we do things. The community they had were, was much more closely knit. The power of God was constantly visible to them as they had witnessed powerful miracles on the day of Pentecost and other miracles on a regular basis. And they also were in the presence of the first-hand witnesses um, to Christ himself. They also held all their wealth in common and distributed it as needed because of the financial implications of being a believer in Christ in those days. I had noted that while we did not live in that kind of environment or situation, we also should be willing to do whatever is required to support the believing community that we are part of, because that is part of our witness to the non-believing community around us. Today, we are going to focus on a miracle that happened when Peter and John were going about their business that day. This entire section from chapter two to chapter five will focus primarily on what happened in uh, Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, it was always Peter who was taking the initiative. He is always the center of attention. Later on in Acts, um, the, the action moves outside Jerusalem. And at that time, you will find that it is Apostle Paul who takes center stage. But whether it is Peter who is in the, in the, on the center stage or Paul, the fact is that um, these narratives are written specifically to show the, leader, the readers that there is a very strong linkage between um, how they did the miracles and how they taught with what Jesus himself taught and did. The only difference that you will find between Jesus' miracles and teachings and that of the apostles is that when Jesus did his miracles, he did it with his own authority. While when the apostles did the miracles, they did it on the authority of Jesus and the name of Jesus, which they made extremely clear to anyone and everyone who is witnessing the miracles. With that introduction, we are now, I believe, ready to jump into the scene that we have just read. The scene that is unfolding in front of us. We are told that Peter and John, who were living in Jerusalem at that point, were going to take part at the 3 p.m. service that was taking place in the temple in Jerusalem. 
they used to offer sacrifices twice a day in those days. There was a morning sacrifice and a late afternoon sacrifice. And so it is this late afternoon sacrifice that they were um, going to witness. When these services were going on, we are told that there was always a big crowd. People would gather at the temple to watch the priests offering the sacrifice and use that scene in front of them as a prompt to pray um, in their own minds um, to God at that time. We know that the apostles were also doing these things. They also attended these sacrifices regularly because they were still very much Jewish in their bones and in their blood. They did everything um, that a good Jew would do in those days. But they also took the opportunity to go to the temple regularly and participate in these services because that was the best place to actually witness to Jesus Christ. Right? Because the, the context that they were in, the temple and the sacrifice, all of them were very strong leadings into who Christ was and what he did for them. So they always used those opportunities. And these people, the God, Jesus' apostles, were, after all, fishermen who had finally learned how to fish. They had learned rule number one, and that is, make sure you are where the fish are. And they had learned rule number two, which is, when you are trying to um, communicate with the fish, you have to use something that the fish can relate to. The bait is something that the fish are drawn to, and you need to know what the people that you are trying to communicate to are going to be drawn to. And so you'd be where the people are and use language that the people can relate to. So, because um, they had these two things at the, at the temple, they went to the temple when the sacrifices were being performed to share about Jesus. This was what they did. I also want to point out that they went in twos, and there is multiple reasons for that. The first reason is that it was in keeping with the pattern that Jesus had set for the apostles, you will remember, that is described to us both in Matthew 10 and in Luke 10. When you go out to proclaim the presence of the kingdom, go in twos. But there was a reason why Jesus all sent them in twos. And that was because it was one of the, in the requirements of Jewish law that when you have a witness for anything in a Jewish law, you always have to have two witnesses to confirm what they were saying. If one witness stood up and said something, it would not be valid. You had to have two people to confirm that what you were saying for it to be valid in Jewish court. And so when two people went and confirmed and made a statement about a witness to Jesus Christ, it, it had a validity that um, was, uh, was not there when only one person went and said what they said. So um, that is why there were two people going. And in this case, we had Peter and John going um, to be a witness. 
Now, another amazing aspect of the story is that this event takes place in front of one of the temple gates called the Beautiful Gate. To appreciate the significance of it, we need a little more context. There are no records that tell us uh, which of the temple's gates is actually called the Beautiful Gate. However, the Jewish historian Josephus does give us some information here, which is very helpful to understanding what is going on. He writes that in those days, the temple had 10 access gates, right? That four walls and, and three um, sub-gates. And in the main entrance, there was a main gate in addition to the three sub-gates. Now, nine out of these 10 gates were overlaid with silver and gold, okay? But the 10th gate or the main gate was the one that was bigger and grander than all of the other nine gates, was ironically not made out of silver and gold, but it was made out of another material that was even more expensive and precious than silver and gold. And they called this material something called Corinthian bronze. Corinthian bronze is, uh, um, the scholars tell us, was an alloy of different kinds of, of metals. We don't really know the exact formula or the mix, but we do know that that there was silver and gold as two of the components within the alloy of Corinthian bronze. But they had different metals in there and it was blended into this incredible composition that created uh, an effect that no other metal could give. And so in ancient times, this was considered the highest and most expensive metal that you could ever find. And this, this gate was actually made, um, I said it was, was bigger and grander than all the gates. So it actually had a ton of Corinthian bronze in it. In fact, this gate was supposed to be so heavy that when they opened the gates in the morning and closed it in the evening, they needed 20 strong men to be able to open and close these gates. So you can imagine how big and heavy those gates were. And not only was this, this gate made of Corinthian bronze and a ton of it, but it was also very, very ornately carved ever. And so it was, it, it was a work of art just to look at. And so when you look at all of these factors, you would understand why this particular gate was called the beautiful gate when you had all the other gates made of overlaid with silver and gold and they were not called the beautiful gate. And so think about this. The main gate was communicating a message to the people who are entering the temple. And the message would have been that when you are entering, remember 
that you are entering through something that is more valuable and precious than even silver and gold. That is why this gate was called the beautiful gate. All right. So this is the context. And in front of this incredibly beautiful looking gate, you have um, this beggar who is sitting there and this incredibly stunning and powerful miracle that we are about to examine takes place with this beautiful gate in the background. Now, because this was the main gate, it had the most foot traffic, right? And so there was a logical place for a beggar to be there. <clears throat> because the Jewish people uh, <clears throat> knew that for in their life, there were three things that were most important to a, to a Jew. The first was the Torah. The first five books of the Bible was something that was the most sacred for the Jews. The next was the temple, of course. And the third was giving alms. The Jew had to, had to hold these three things as the most important things in their life. The Torah, the temple, and giving alms. So when the people went to the temple and they saw a beggar there, they were sure to toss a coin to the beggar because it was part of the three important things for the Jew. But you can imagine that when they did that, when they tossed the coin, they would be doing it without really paying much attention to the beggar, right? I mean, the beggar was sitting there, he would have a bowl or something, and they would just take a coin and toss it and move on because they were actually there for something in their mind that is far more important and that is going to the temple and be part of the service there. So that meant that, um, you know, the beggar um, would, would get um, his, his um, dose of um, the, the coins that he needed to sustain his life because he was sitting in uh, in a good position. But it also meant that, that that is what sustained the beggar because in those days, being a beggar, um, being somebody who was disabled, he, would, he was not allowed to actually be part of the, either the worship in the temple or even in a position to actually do some other job um, because he was maimed from birth and that's what the text tells us today. So thinking of this man is, uh, and his position is um, a, a, a tremendous contrast to this beautiful gate that is behind him. But it also takes me back to my childhood. Because as I read this, it triggers all the memories in my mind of all the beggars that I passed when I grew up in Mumbai. Personally, those are very painful memories for me. These beggars that I passed also had some serious disabilities. Some from birth. I remember the beggar who would actually sit at the gate of the church that my family and I went to in, in Santa Cruz. Now that gate was 
nothing compared to the gate that I just described to you this morning. But the beggar had a lot of similarities to this situation. He was somebody who actually had no limbs. And so he was not even able to get up and walk. And he was able to survive because somebody had made a board for him uh, out of wood that he could sit on. And that board had supports made of four big ball bearings. And so he would sit on that board and he would push against the street um, on that board. And that's how he would move from point A to point B. And so um, I think on his hands, he had some kind of a rubber device that he could use to push on the street. And uh, I'm sure Sonia will know what I'm talking about here. And guess what? He was positioned right there in front of the church gate um, simply because of the exact same reasons that he was the, the, the beggar in our story is positioned in front of, of the, the beautiful gate. Just so that people going into and coming out of church might throw him some coins so that he might um, get what he needed to survive um, for the day. But as I, as I remember this beggar, I'm also reminded of the many other beggars who were actually in Mumbai, not because they were born um, with disabilities, but because they were children who were actually kidnapped um, as a kid and then maimed and then made to beg on the streets um, so that <clears throat> Um, you know, they would be, they would attract more sympathy from the passers-by. And um, it's, it's really heartbreaking to think of, of them because at the end of the day, whatever they collected, somebody would come and grab most of that money and they would collect it um, and, and pass it on to the gangs who, who were in charge of those different areas. And so these beggars would not even be able to keep what they received from begging. Those are hard memories for me. I saw so much extreme poverty that it overwhelmed me. And I had to zone it out for my own personal survival. But this story, the story in Acts chapter three is, uh, um, is a heartwarming story for me because it has a happy ending for the beggar that we are uh, talking about. So let's get to the good part. Now, Peter and John were in the stream of people walking to the temple that day. And they come across this beggar and you can imagine this beggar was repeatedly um, pleading, um, you know, Whatever it is, he had a chant, you know, he was begging, he says, throw some coins or whatever he was begging. And he would have been repeating that over and over again. And then when Peter and John come to this beggar, they look at him and they stop and they speak to him and they say, look at us. Now, this really gets our friend's attention because as I mentioned earlier, 
people don't stop and talk to beggars when they throw their coins, right? They're not there to socialize with the beggar. So if somebody is coming and stopping and looking at this beggar and speaking to him, this beggar is thinking, maybe this person wants to give me um, a lot of money. And so they want to make sure that I know who it is that is giving them this money. And so he gets their attention and he also has his expectations skyrocket from Peter and John. And so now that Peter and John have the attention of the beggar, uh, Peter once again takes the initiative in the story and he tells this beggar, silver and gold I don't have, but what I have I give to you. And with that, he says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And he stretches out his arms, he holds the arm of the beggar, and he lifts him up, and miraculously, the beggar is able to <clears throat> get up and actually walk. And we are told that uh, the beggar is so excited that he not only is able to walk, but he runs and he leaps and he is full of joy. Now this healing miracle not only gave this man the ability to walk on his two feet, but it made him whole again. And that granted him the privileges of participating as a full member in the social life of the society of that day. And so he was not only now given the ability to walk, but he could walk to wherever he wanted. In fact, he could walk into those beautiful gates and go into the temple, something he was not permitted to do in those days. He was able to walk and maybe now earn his own livelihood and gain dignity and respect. And those were amazing things. And so you can imagine when Peter and John said, what I have, I give to you. Those were powerful words. Words that transformed a human being from a life of misery to a life of great joy. Peter began with these words. What I have, I give to you. And so we have to take some time to ponder, what is he talking about? What does Peter mean when he says, what I have, I give to you? What did Peter give the beggar that day? I believe he gave the beggar three things. Firstly, Peter had a relationship with Christ that gave him an awareness of what Christ wanted in that particular situation. When you know somebody, you know their desires, right? When you live with somebody long enough, you know what they like. You kind of know if you go to a restaurant, what are they going to order? You know them. You know their will. And so Jesus Christ had a relationship with Peter in a, that was close enough that Peter knew what Christ's will was. And so he was able to offer that knowledge of God's will in that situation. 
It's the first thing I believe that Peter had that he was able to offer the beggar that day. The second thing was that he had the power of the Holy Spirit. That gave him the ability to do the will of God. What's the point of knowing God's will if you don't have the power to execute that will? The third thing is that he had the love of Christ that gave him the desire to exercise that power um, that he had. He had the love of God to bless an individual that nobody would care about in the society in those days. So three things, I believe, were embedded in when Peter said, what I have, I give to you. The knowledge of God's will, the power of God, and the love of God. Because he had these three things, and because he was able to give these three things to the beggar, that turned the beggar's life around completely. From that moment, moment onwards, this individual was not just walking once again, um, not once again, sorry, for the first time ever, but he was jumping and dancing and praising God. And we are also told that all the people around were shocked by so great a miracle. It caused waves that day. And we are told that all the people gathered there in the temple to witness the sacrifice rushed out in amazement to Solomon's colonnade. And when they rushed out, they saw this man who was healed tightly holding on to Peter and John because he was so excited for what they had done for him. So the important question is then, what does this story tell us? Firstly, it tells us that if we have Christ in us, then we too have those same three things that Peter had. We too could possess the awareness of God's will, the power of God's spirit, and the love of God. And that would be our primary drivers in doing the things that we do. So let's contemplate these three things for a moment. Firstly, I have to recognize that we know that when we know God and when and therefore know his will, this is a really powerful thing. When the people around us are sick, for example, we pray for their healing, not because we want to compete with the MDs at KUMC. We pray for healing because God, we know, made this world and he made it perfectly. There was no disease when God first made the world. God did, make, did not make bodies with the biochemistry that was in any way defective. God made them perfect. Disease is simply the groaning of our bodies 
that is part of the groaning of all creation. Like the Bible says, it is a result of sin and it is also the longing of God's good creation for the final remaking of all things that God has promised. And I believe all creation already knows that which God has promised, that he is going to remake all things. That is why Jesus healed people. And Jesus asked his disciples to go out and heal people in his name. So when we, when we pray that God would heal somebody, that's because that is the will of God. Now you may ask, what if God does not heal? Well, if God does not heal, here, he's going to heal them in heaven, right? One way or the other, God is going to heal people. If you have a health problem right now, you are going to be healed. The question is, you, you could be healed right now, this very minute, you could be healed a year from now, or you could be healed when your body is remade in heaven. But that healing is going to come. The only question is, when it happens. We don't know when that is going to happen. God knows it. But one way or the other, know my friends, that God will heal. And if he heals here, then people will see it and be astonished and believe. And there's also this added benefit <clears throat> that all these people are going to look at them and believe and see God's power in action right here. This is God's will. So we should pray. Um, so the question is, should we pray? If this is God's will, God's will, then may this person be healed. I believe the if part is only a question of timing. As long as we are thinking in our mind, when we say, if it is your will, God, heal this person. If we are thinking that the if part is the timing issue of it, then it's okay to say, if it is your, if your will, God, heal this person. It is always God's will to heal, however. But it may not be now for some reason that is not known to us. That is beyond our pay, pay grade to know the timing of God's action. But never forget that the stronger your relationship with Christ is, the better you are acquainted with God's will. And the more you will be filled with the awareness that God's will is always to heal. Secondly, know that as a child of God, you too have the power of the name of Jesus. This is when praying for miracles is the use of this power. To use power effectively, we have to be aware of it and use it. This is not something that actually comes to us automatically. It takes practice to use the power that we have. So how do we practice 
this power of God, and the power of the name of God? I believe it is by praying and living out our identity as a child of God, given this power, the power of Christ's name. We tend to, as, as people live like line cubs raised like puppy dogs. Puppy dogs bark, they don't have much power in their bite, right? But we are not puppy dogs, we are line cubs that will one day have a serious bite. The more we live our identity, the more we'll be aware of the power that we have and the better we will get at using the power of Jesus' name in the situations that God sends us into as his servants. Finally, um, and most important, I believe, is that um, as a Christ follower, we have to have Christ's love in us that drives us in all things. You may know that God, you may know what God wants in a particular situation. You may know God's will in a particular situation. You may have the power to execute that will. But you also need a motivation to do something, right? We need to be motivated even to get up out in the morning, to get out of bed in the morning. The fact that we actually do something is because we have some motivation that drives us to do it. And so to add to the fact that we have an awareness of God's will and the power of God, we also have to have the why. Why do we do it? The why is the motivation. And the motivation is the love of God. Without motivation, we cannot do anything. This is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13 and 2, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all the mysteries and have all the knowledge, and if I have all the faith so as to move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. What Paul is saying is, I may have all of the knowledge of God's will and all of the power of God, but if I do not have the motivation that comes from God, all of those other things are meaningless because I'm not going to get started even. Without love, all the knowledge and capacity that we have in us will remain as nothing. We will still be in the starting block with no motivation to move forward. Without love, it is impossible to turn your face towards a beggar and reach out your hand. Without love, you can do nothing of any value to God. Peter and John did have tremendous love in their hearts. The kind that only God can put there. That is why they were able to reach out to someone that everybody else was ignoring at the time. Peter did not have silver and gold, my friends, but they had everything that mattered. Peter had knowledge of the will of God. They had the power of the Holy Spirit. 
and the love of Christ. May each one of us to be willing to do everything that the knowledge of God gives us. The power and the love that is driven by the motivation that comes from that love. So that we too are able to do all things beautiful and to bless those around us. May God bless us. Let us pray. A loving Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this incredibly beautiful story. The story that happens at a beautiful backdrop. But what you do is even more beautiful than the gate that was the backdrop. Well, I'm just stunned and amazed that you have promised. It's hard to imagine. It's hard to it's it's hard to wrap our uh, heads around. But what you have given Peter, when he said that day, what I have, I give to you. You have given to each one of us as well. It's hard for us, Lord, to imagine. Because it's so hard to imagine, we don't walk around as if we have it. Because we don't walk around as if we have it, we don't get to experience and see these kind of miracles. But Lord, we know that you are also patient with us. That you allow us time to be aware and grow in our awareness of your will in a situation. Of your power that you have given us in a particular situation. And even the love that you have put in us for the people around us. So help us, O oh Lord, to exercise these three things and be a blessing to those around us so that people can be amazed, as amazed as they were that day when the crowds ran out from the temple to see what you had done. So be with us, O oh Lord, and bless us likewise and, and equip us to do even these kind of miracles in our day, in our time, in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.